Sexually transmitted diseases are still a major medical and public health problem in this country. Almost 19 million women and men are being diagnosed yearly, where more women than men are being diagnosed, and over 50% of those folks are between the ages of 15 and 24. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. With us today is Dr. David Soper, who is the Professor of Medicine and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Medical University of South Carolina, to talk a little bit about the challenges in treating our patients with STDs and some of the new research that may be helpful. Welcome, Dr. Soper. Thank you, Lisa. So what do you think one of the greatest challenges facing healthcare providers today are with regards to STDs in their patient care? Well, I think the biggest challenge is to get practicing clinicians to recognize that indeed their patients are at risk for sexually transmitted diseases. And one of the reasons that that's such a challenge is that all the sexually transmitted diseases present most often without any symptoms at all. And therefore, the clinician needs to embark upon a screening strategy. There are recommended screening strategies that the CDC has published in order to be able to define the patient that is infected and therefore offer uh, treatment to her and her partner and prevent the adverse sequelae that are associated with these sexually transmitted infections. Do you think that we should be doing universal screening? For example, the person who claims they're monogamous, should they undergo the STD screens based on age that are recommended by the CDC as well? I do. I mean, specifically, I think that adolescents that are sexually active, even though they may be in a mutually monogamous relationship as far as the uh, clinician that's caring for them is concerned, run such a high risk of chlamydial infection, for example, that every time you see an adolescent in the office, it really is worth your while to go ahead and test them with a nucleic acid amplification test for chlamydia. And it's particularly important if any of those adolescents are at the highest risk. Those would be patients that have multiple sexual partners or whose partner has multiple partners or who have a history of prior sexually transmitted infection. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the tests that we're using now are accurate in really picking up the chlamydia or the other things we're testing for in that regard? I think they are. I think most people now are using nucleic acid amplification tests. Those have a very high degree of both sensitivity and specificity and can be relied upon to be true positives in the populations that we're discussing. And let me just mention that the other population that should be screened would be those women that are under the age of 25 that do have a risk factor. I think this kind of approach to screening and recognition of risk really allows the person in practice to practically offer these women the test. It's usually covered by their payers, and it can be very protective when you can treat them when they have an uncomplicated lower genital tract infection. And I think you were involved in the PEACH study as well, where women who were not being treated for chlamydia and gonorrhea end up having PID and what happens to them? That's correct. The PEACH trial was actually a, a prospective randomized trial of inpatient versus outpatient management for pelvic inflammatory disease. And of course, both chlamydia and gonorrhea are known causes of upper tract infection and pelvic inflammatory disease, which can lead to the adverse sequelae of infertility and chronic pelvic pain and ectopic pregnancy. And actually, Dahlia Scholes from Seattle showed in a 
uh, Kaiser population a number of years ago that screening for chlamydia actually decreases the risk of subsequent diagnosis of PID substantially. Our study, again, just showed equivalence as far as being able to treat mild to moderate pelvic inflammatory disease as an outpatient, which would, of course, save a lot of money if, if everyone didn't have to be admitted to the hospital with a clinical diagnosis of PID. About five cases of PID can be treated as outpatients for every single case that actually meets criteria for admission. Mm. And so much because these are younger patients, a question of compliance has come up in the past. Did you find that in that study? We really had very good compliance in our patient population. That is a concern and is actually cited as a reason that admission, particularly for adolescents, should be considered. But I think uh, even in adolescents in our study, the outpatient regimens were so effective, well over 90%, that we feel confident that you can even treat your adolescents with the outpatient therapeutic regimens. Do you feel that in the study there was information suggesting that BV or bacterial vaginosis is actually an STD? That is a very controversial statement. We know an awful lot about bacterial vaginosis, and that is it's a complex alteration of vaginal flora where the normal lactobacilli disappear for some unknown reason and are replaced by anaerobic bacteria and the mycoplasmas. Clearly, pelvic inflammatory disease is associated with BV, and arguably, BV microorganisms are the more common microorganisms that are found in the upper genital tract of women with a clinical diagnosis of PID. For this reason, the therapeutic regimens that CDC recommends includes not only treatment for gonorrhea and chlamydia, but gives the clinician an option of adding metronidazole for concurrent therapy of bacterial vaginosis. And in fact, this is what I recommend to clinicians when they're trying to decide should they add metronidazole or not to a, a regimen for pelvic inflammatory disease. And I would guide them this way. If the patient has PID based on your clinical suspicion, but they don't have evidence of bacterial vaginosis in the vagina, then I think therapy without metronidazole is acceptable. However, if you do a wet mount of the vaginal secretions and make the diagnosis of bacterial vaginosis concurrently with a clinical diagnosis of PID, that would be the patient that requires not only oral therapy for GC and chlamydia, but also needs metronidazole therapy for bacterial vaginosis. Do you feel that this is a particular problem for patients who are pregnant? Pelvic inflammatory disease is not a problem of, of patients that are pregnant, except maybe very early in pregnancy. Sexually transmitted infections, of course, are indeed a problem in pregnancy. Most STDs are associated with increased risks of preterm labor, preterm delivery, and chorioamnionitis, as well as postpartum infections. And bacterial vaginosis probably heads the list of vaginitis or vaginal flora abnormalities that increase that risk. And in the non-pregnant patient, when you do diagnose chlamydia or gonorrhea, what is the current recommendations for antibiotic usage as an outpatient in your study? Well, in patients that have an uncomplicated lower genital tract infection with either GC and chlamydia need, for example, for gonorrhea, need a single injection of 125 milligrams of ceftriaxone. And for Chlamydia need a single dose of one gram of azithromycin. If the patient, however, has upper tract infection, then the recommendation for therapy is much more prolonged. The treatment includes 
an injection, say, of 250 milligrams, the dose is increased in patients with a clinical diagnosis of PID of ceftriaxone. And in addition, to a two-week course of doxycycline, 100 milligrams BID, plus or minus metronidazole, and that's where you have to know whether the patient has bacterial vaginosis or not. There used to be quinolones were recommended for the treatment of PID. The trouble with quinolone therapy right now is there's an increasing problem with quinolone resistance in Neisseria gonorrhea. So those regimens are not being as strongly advocated because of that resistance, and we're being shifted back to an extended spectrum cephalosporin to make sure that the gonorrhea is covered adequately. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Dr. David Soper, the professor of medicine and obstetrics and gynecology at the Medical University of South Carolina, discussing the trends and difficulties of treating sexually transmitted diseases in young women today. Dr. Soper, we were just talking about antibiotic resistance, and I want to touch on that again. You know, I think that we're seeing greater resistances to our antibiotic regimens when we're dealing with patients with chlamydia and gonorrhea. Are you suggesting that we treat patients differently because of that trend? I think the biggest problem we're having with the emergence of resistant microorganisms in in the STD world is this quinolone resistance in Neisseria gonorrhea. It's become such a problem as it's kind of marched across the United States from California to the East Coast that we no longer recommend quinolones such as ciprofloxacin for primary therapy for gonococcal infections. Now we're left with extended-spectrum cephalosporins such as the injectable ceftriaxone or oral cefixime or cefpidoxine. And the cost of that is significantly different than the original therapy? Well, the cost still is not very great. I mean, I think the cost issue, particularly for oral therapies, is low, and these drugs now are generic. Well, that'll certainly make it easier for folks to pay for. Can we touch for a moment on partnership management? So you have a patient who has a positive chlamydia or gonorrhea test. Their partner does not have a regular physician. What do you think our responsibility and our best care for patients would be regarding the partner in that situation? Well, there's a new concept that's being mulled over, and it's called expedited partner management. Uh, Essentially, what this refers to is that the clinician that makes the original diagnosis of a sexually transmitted infection, say chlamydia, for example, goes ahead and writes a prescription that can then be delivered to the sexual partner, and the patient then takes it. It's been shown that the incidence of recurrent disease in the index case is greatly decreased by that approach. Now, the problem with expedited partner management is that there are some rules in many states that suggest that physicians cannot write a prescription for a person that they've not seen and developed a doctor-patient relationship with. The expedited partner management is is legal in many states, and you'll have to check the CDC website to see exactly which ones those are. It's probably legal in, in many others, and then it's actually illegal in several. So check the CDC website. But I think many of us have already had the experience, for example, of making the diagnosis of trichomonas vaginitis, and instead of writing the prescription of metronidazole for four tablets, to equal a two-gram dose is that we double the prescription to eight tablets and have the patient take four and then instruct her to give the additional four tablets to her partner. 
Are you suggesting test of cures in these patients with or without partner management? As long as CDC-recommended regimens are used, test of cures are not necessary. But if alternative agents are used, then because their efficacy rates drop down to around 90% or in some cases even less, then test of cure should be ascertained. We were talking briefly about some of the findings in the PEACH study, and I was curious, was there some data discussing douching and the risk of STD transmission? We did collect that data in the PEACH study. It was subsequently reported in a separate report by Roberta Ness and other colleagues. And essentially, the way I think of the adverse consequences of douching is I think of it the way douching disturbs normal vaginal flora. Normal vaginal flora, which is lactobacilli dominant, where lactobacilli make lactic acid to decrease vaginal pH and hydrogen peroxide, which kills other microorganisms that are in the vagina, is actually protective. It actually decreases one's risk of contacting an STI and also HIV. Conversely, if you have bacterial vaginosis, you're more at risk to develop another sexually transmitted infection like gonorrhea or chlamydia, and you're at more risk to develop HIV. So, If you can maintain your normal flora, therefore prevent douching, and by not douching, you avoid the harmful effects of the douching material on the normal vaginal flora, then you don't increase your risk for these other adverse consequences. Mm -hmm. The current trends in STD prevalence seems to show us that there is somewhat of a little reduction in chlamydia and gonorrhea, but there is a resurgence of syphilis in the population. Why do you think that's happening? Well, if you look at gonorrhea and chlamydia rates, part of the increases that we're seeing were probably because of increases in screening. And I think what we're seeing now is that as the screening has gotten to a certain level, you then get epidemiologic therapy and you decrease rates because you're decreasing overall prevalence. Syphilis is not such a ubiquitous sexually transmitted infection. It tends to be focused in only certain areas of the United States as far as the epidemics go, and therefore these end up being in individuals that have poor access to care. They may be folks that are sex workers and the like, individuals that might have drug abuse problems. Those are folks that tend to fall outside of uh, the control systems that we have in place in this country to decrease the overall risk. Thank you so much, Dr. Soper, for joining us today. He's been our guest as we've been discussing the challenges and some of the new trends in sexually transmitted disease care, for particularly for women in the United States. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For a complete program guide and podcast, please visit reachmd.com. Thank you.